Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they, re they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me give us uh, to have a word of prayer as we dig into this passage. Father, we just pray uh, that by your Holy Spirit, you would be with us as uh, we look at this passage. We pray that we would see what you are revealing of yourself through it, um, that we would see Jesus face to face. Amen. So this is the last time I, I get to do this. And of course, um, all, the, all the great preachers, uh, when they stand up for their final sermon, have something very profound to say that goes into the books for many, many years. So it's a great relief to all of us that I'm not one of those, and, uh, and we can forget all about everything that's just about to be said. Um, uh, I should also warn you that um, I, I've got sort of three points to my sermon again. Um, I had three points. Well, rumor has it that I had three points last week as well. Um, now, uh, my artistic friends would be having a fit if they heard that, but fortunately there's no evidence because the computer broke down halfway through the sermon last week, and so there's no actual recorded evidence of last week's sermon. So my conservative leanings, which are suddenly appearing out of nowhere, um, are completely unprovable. But uh, for Miriam and I, obviously, this is, a, this is quite an odd time, a time of real uncertainty. Um, we, we know we're leaving, uh, but the processes in terms of uh, discerning where we're going to go have taken longer than we had thought. Um, and although we're excited about the possibilities that lie ahead, we haven't actually worked out quite which one of them is going to come true. Um, and the logistics that lie between here and there are considerable. Um, and and one, of course, at a time like that, the rubber hits the road, doesn't it, with one's faith? I, we, have, we find ourselves going, can we trust that God is going to take care of us? Can we trust that he even exists, and that if he does exist, that he is, in fact, worth following? I want to look at how this passage helps us deal with that, which I suppose most of us feel to some degree at some point or other, whether that be a, a sort of an initial, do I want to follow Jesus, full stop, decision, or whether this is the daily decision that we make uh, to follow Jesus and to follow his agenda. And I think that in our passage, there's something of a three-legged stool of what that looks like. There is the idea of belief, sort of cognitive belief. That would be one stool leg. Uh, the second leg uh, would be uh, being conformed to God's agenda. Do we want to, is it actually God's agenda that we want to follow in our lives? And thirdly, there's that the leg of responding to God with our hearts. In some ways, there's a certain sequence to those, um, but I think they also feed on themselves. I can't remember who that artist is that does those weird perspective pictures where there's a stairwell that has... Does anyone remember who that, who that is? Who's, 
Escher, thank you. I meant to check that before I stood up. But it feels a little bit like that, doesn't it? That these three uh, elements of our faith, uh, what, uh, in terms of our belief, um, our active engagement in God's agenda, and our heart response to him, are like, uh, like one of those pictures. They build and build and build on each other. What convinces you that it is worth following God today or tomorrow? How do you get beyond the theoretical in that to, uh, to the functional, actually living out of uh, your faith in Jesus? I think that's what this passage digs into. You might notice that there are two uh, moments within the passage where Jesus talks about being something greater. He talks about being uh, greater than Jonah and being greater uh, than Solomon. Um, and just by way of a tiny bit of context, uh, this rounds out something that's been going on throughout the chapter. Last week, we looked towards the beginning of the chapter where, where Jesus says he is greater than the temple. And actually, if you put these three together, you have the three big motifs of God's engagement with the world. You have the priesthood, uh, the prophetic world, and the world of kings. Jesus, uh, we talk about as being prophet, priest, and king. Uh, and actually, here in this chapter, there is a sense that Jesus declares himself to be the ultimate in all three of those. He is, he is the greatest prophet he is beyond Jonah. He is greater than Jonah. And he is the greatest way in which God displays his, himself to us, reveals himself to us. He is the greatest king. He is the one that brings in God's rule in a way that none of the earthly kings could. And he is the greatest priest or temple from earlier in the chapter. He is the one who truly enables us to come into the presence of God uh, and have that relationship restored. But, the, but the one of those that I want to drill into particularly, which is the sort of meat, I suppose, of the passage this morning, is this idea of him being greater than Jonah. Um, and with this in mind, I want us just simply to unpack these three basic ideas. Firstly, that faith in Jesus is reasonable, um, um, and that faith in Jesus involves conceding to God's agenda, and thirdly, that faith in Jesus involves a heart response to him. And I would argue that it is point two and three in there that stop the, the Pharisees from accepting point one. So at the beginning, there's this simple request from uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, give us a sign, show us who you really are. Um, and I suppose just in terms of the context, if you've been present with us the last few weeks, you will have seen the stories that have been told about the extraordinary authority of Jesus in teaching and in action. It was so obvious who Jesus really was, if you had eyes to see it, but the Pharisees were determined not to. And so they ask for a sign, and they get this fairly strong rebuke from Jesus, don't they? That's a wicked and adulterous generation ask for a sign. I, I don't know about you. I, I, um, my my, my uh, stomach tightens a little bit at that because I know that feeling of wanting a sign from God. There's several times over the last uh, few uh, weeks and months where I've said, God, I just, I just wish you were a little bit more obvious 
in the decision-making process that we're trying to go through at this point. I wish you'd show yourself a little bit more. Is it wrong to ask for a sign? Well, I'd say fundamentally, I, it's, it's not quite as simple as that. I, um, I would say that when we see signs being asked for in the Bible, um, and when God does give a sign, that is generally a concession to our timidity and our lack of trust. Um, that's basically how, how so, so there would be no signs if we were truly following God and trusting Him. There would be no need for them. That's, that's a massive oversimplification, but that's a way to explore how signs appear uh, in the Bible. Um, there, of course, is this idea of do not put the Lord your God to the test, which is uh, part of uh, uh, what God tells the, old, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, which is really about don't, don't ask for signs on your own terms, just in a, as a way to get what you want, as if to twist God's arm behind his back. So there, there are ways in which one can, uh, uh, the, you know, signs may conceivably be helpful. I suppose it's, I'm saying that it's not wrong to want God to show you where you might go. It's not wrong to ask for some sense of his reality. But it is wrong uh, to do that out of either a desire to twist God's arm or, more pertinently to this passage, uh, because actually God has shown you far more than you even need, as he had the Pharisees. They were asking for a sign because they wanted to use it somehow to manipulate it so that to, to, to their ends, which was to say, this guy is clearly a sorcerer. If he can do magical signs, that doesn't show that he's the son of God. It shows that he's just some sorcerer from the devil. That's what they wanted to be able to show. So I don't think it's simply that desire to know God and for him to reveal himself and to reveal his will fundamentally that is at question here. But what does it mean, therefore, for us to ask for a sign? Um, how, how does that function for us? I think we all have very different personalities in this regard. Some people go through the Christian life full of confidence and trust that God is who he says he is and that... Uh, and uh, that he will always be constantly there. I'm, I'm not one of those people. Um, I wonder if it's partly the artistic temperament in me. I, uh, a friend of mine who's also uh, a, a church minister relatively locally, childhood friend, uh, was over a few days ago, and we were walking through Marble Hill, and I said to him, do you ever have those mornings where you just wake up and go, can I seriously believe this stuff? Um, and he said, yeah, I do actually. You know, and now we, we, were, we were musicians together. We were in a sixth form band together. Um, uh, and so I suspect that we have a little bit of a shared personality there. We are not those types who are constantly confident of uh, what is happening in front of us. We are, there is a sort of natural, I don't know, if timidity is the right word. Um, but I often find myself having to trust the work that I've done in the past um, to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Work that I cannot sit down every day and work back through philosophically and logically. I have to rely on it a little bit. Um, but I still find myself coming back to this, to, to, to niggly little questions. Little, little is entirely the wrong word. They're huge questions. Um, suffering. I don't find that an easy uh, question to answer. I've got ways of thinking about it but it's not 
easy. We don't get to do away with it. I find it constantly difficult to be in a minority view. I'm not the confident type that finds it easy to have a minority view. It always makes me feel a little bit absurd. Um, of course, in reality, belief in God is by no means a minority view in this world. But I think we all have different levels of, of battle in this regard. What, what it looks like to be confident of God being at work in our lives. The thing that I find myself ultimately coming back to, and which I think that Jesus points us to in this passage, is the death and resurrection that, of, of Jesus. Um, the sign of Jonah, which we'll come on to in a little bit. I, for, for me, if I, if I could see a more reasonable explanation for the resurrection than Jesus being who he said he was, um, that would completely undermine everything for me, but I can't, and that's the thing that I keep coming back to, ultimately. And I think that that's where Jesus points us. He says, if you want a sign, you are going to get the most almighty sign. I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. The ultimate sign. Now, of course, if you're like me, I'm going, the sign of Jonah? You're really telling me that the story of Jonah is the way that you want me to believe that this stuff isn't absurd? story about a guy getting swallowed by a fish? Anyway, we can come on to that in just a moment. But note that Jesus doesn't expect that to actually be the thing that convinces the Pharisees. He, he pushes the story of Jonah further. We will come back to actually what happens in the story of Jonah. To the result, the people that did repent when they heard the message of Jonah. And he says, it, it's not until the final day when all things are fully revealed in all their fullness that you will see how you have rejected the God's revelation to you, and it'll, it'll be the men and women of Nineveh that stand in judgment of you. Because the thing is, it's quite hard to work out what will actually change our minds, what will actually change the way we think about the world we live in. Um, I, I remember uh, months, uh, a few years ago, a couple of days after I'd first arrived in Vancouver, being on a ferry and looking north um, and seeing these, a mass of lights in the sky. And they were really bright lights, and they were way too high to be a building, but they were all stationary, um, so they couldn't have been helicopters, they couldn't have been airplanes, they couldn't have been satellites. Um, and I was just looking at them going, well, they, they, they're obviously not aliens, but what are they? And I was looking around, and everyone's looking very relaxed. And I'm thinking, is it all in my head? Now, I'd be, it, it had been raining since I'd arrived, and I hadn't seen that actually on the north shore of Vancouver, there are the most enormous mountains. And actually, all I was looking at was the ski hill at the top of the mountains. Um, but it was that thing of, I knew that there weren't aliens, and nothing uh, actually was going to make me concede that there were aliens up uh, in the sky. I was determined that even though I might never find an explanation, there must be one, other than there are aliens. I don't know if you relate to that kind of logic. I think, it's, you don't, do you? You think I'm completely nuts. It's a good job this is, you see, I can, I can let it all hang out now because, you, you know, you don't need to believe a word I say from here on in. Um, I think that's often the way we function, that when we're convinced of something, there's nothing that will happen actually to change our 
minds. But actually, belief in the resurrection is a reasonable thing. And this isn't the place to go into that, because actually that really needs to, be, needs to happen in conversation. Um, but I'd happily have that conversation with you, and I know uh, Richard would, and we've got lots of resources that we could offer you to dig into the cerebral thoughts around, is the resurrection real? Can Jesus be who he claimed to be? Simply, it is a reasonable belief. Um, but given that all that the Pharisees had seen of Jesus, why then were they so determined not to believe in aliens? I mean, sorry, why were they so determined not to believe that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be? Well, I think it basically came down to the fact that they couldn't accept God's agenda in Jesus. They couldn't accept what they saw in Jesus as being actually from God. They were looking for the Son of God, but they were looking for something that looked completely different. I don't know if you know that thing when this happens to Miriam and I relatively regularly, when she sends me back into the house to, to pick something up that we've, we've forgotten, that I don't know what it looks like. And I'll come back out saying, I'm sorry, I can't find it. And she'll go, it's there! And it just looks a bit different than I'd expected. Okay? It's a bit like that with the Pharisees. Um, they they couldn't see Jesus because he didn't look like they expected him to. They were looking for a very Jewish king who was going to throw out the Romans. We've said this a number of times. But they get, struck, they get presented with the fact that that, in fact, is not God's agenda. And to make that clear that that has actually never been God's agenda, Jesus throws them two Old Testament stories. Firstly, there's this story of Jonah. You remember the story? Jonah is told to go to the city of Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh was basically, the, in those days, the sort of capital of the, of the oppressing regime. Uh, on the, 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 so uh, it would have been a very dark and, uh, place to be called to. You know, you'd be very angry and very, uh, very you know, it would have been a horrible thing to be called to Nineveh. Um, and so he says no, and he runs in the opposite direction. And then, of course, there's the whole thing about him getting swallowed by a fish. Um, and in the fish for three days, he, uh, he, uh, he comes back to God. He repents, um, and he gets thrown back onto the dry land and does indeed now go to Nineveh. Um, and maybe the Ninevites have heard this extraordinary story about this man that gets thrown overboard and then gets vomited up on the beach by a fish. Um, and they therefore take him very seriously, and through uh, God's grace in their lives, they recognize the truth of his message, and they respond to God, um, and uh, they have this total response, in fact, which we'll come back to. And Jonah is furious, because as far as he's concerned, they're outsiders, they shouldn't be allowed into God's people, he's part of God's people, he should, it should be for him and the Israelites, and that is it. He is furious that God has had the grace to invite the world in to his blessing. The story uh, of the Queen of the South, that's the Queen of Sheba. Um, if, if, the, if the story of Jonah seems uh, far-fetched, um, the, the story of the Queen of Sheba, on the other hand, there's masses, uh, of, of inf it's masses of documentation around uh, the ancient Near East from non-Israelite sources that talk about this story. It's clearly something that happened. The queen of what we think would now be Yemen uh, hears of 
Solomon and uh, all his wisdom and uh, the, 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 the wealth that he is creating for his nation through his wise and godly rule, comes to see it, asks him lots of awkward questions, and hears just the sense of authority and rightness in his responses, sees the reality of the wealth of, of his rule, um, and is overwhelmed by this and praises God. Two stories then about people who are not from Israel responding to what they see of God. One through that sense of the miraculous and one through the sense of, of wisdom and authoritative teaching. Both of which, of course, are true of Jesus. But they're not what the Pharisees wanted. They wanted their own personal little God that would save the people of Israel of whom they wanted to be proud. But God's agenda was of ultimate scope. It was for the whole world. What is your agenda as you come to the idea of who Jesus is? There's the old saying that God made man in his own image and man returned the favor. I think we often do that. We often make God in our image. But Jesus wants to say, you don't get to believe in the God that you want to believe in. You don't get to shape your ideas of God to suit yourself. No, God is a real person with a real vision for a real world. But actually, isn't that better? Isn't that a better thing to believe in? A more exciting thing to believe in? A God who has an agenda to restore the whole world, us included. Isn't that better than some personal God who's going to sort my life out? I think it's easier to believe in, uh, in God once we can get outside of ourselves, outside of our own circumstances, and gain that sense of God's agenda in rescuing the whole world. And then thirdly, so the Pharisees failed to believe. Uh, secondly, they failed to believe because uh, God didn't match their agenda. And thirdly, they didn't want to believe because they knew that God demanded a response. And that's another thing that gets picked up in both of these stories, the Jonah and the Sheba story. One of, one of the sort of theme words of the story of Jonah is what you might call totality. The totality uh, of God's reign. You see that in the fact that it is as uh, Jonah plummets to the depths, the furthest you could get from the gods in the ancient Near East. That is where God scoops him up um, and brings him back uh, into his purposes. God covers the whole world. And then, of course, he arrives in Nineveh to discover that once again, that in the darkest reaches of humanity, God is also at work. And then you also see it in the fullness of the repentance of the people of Nineveh, that they even dress the animals in sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes. This sense of total uh, turning to God of everything they are and everything that they have. So there's a totality to the response that we see in Jonah. The, the, the word, I think, in the story of the Queen of Sheba is different. It's the, story, it's the, it's the word lavishness, that as the Queen of Sheba sees 
the God of Solomon, she responds with lavish praise. Praise be to Yahweh your God who's delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of Yahweh's eternal love for Israel, he's made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And she pours on the people of Israel, gift upon gift upon gift. There's a lavishness to her response. God invites that response, that response of total coming to him, lavishness in our giving of ourselves to him. And the Pharisees did not want to make anything like that kind of response. And you can see that in that coldness that they keep close to their hearts. So in this story, we see that Jesus is greater than Jonah. He offers the ultimate sign uh, of God's revelation and, and of his being God in his death and resurrection. He shows the ultimate scope of God's agenda, which goes far beyond our agenda, covers the entire world. And he shows that he asks of us the ultimate response of giving totally and lavishly of ourselves in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, which is the sign of Jonah. Jesus offers us that ultimate proof that enables us to find it reasonable to believe. He offers us uh, the ultimate impact. He invites us into his agenda. And thirdly, he demands from us the ultimate response of our very selves. So, coming back to Miriam and myself as we face the questions uh, that lie ahead. Uh, I, we need to hold on to all three of these, and, I, and that's what I want you to do this week. I need to hold on to that sense that God is worth following, that there, it is a reasonable thing to trust in God, to trust that Jesus is who he claimed to be. But that, that doesn't make sense on it own, in its own. It only makes sense when I add to it a longing to be part of his agenda, to join him in the rescue plan that he has for the whole world. And it only makes sense if I step out, not just in action, but in a heart that gives itself totally and lavishly to God. So that is my prayer for Miriam and myself and for Asher uh, as we continue to work out what God might be doing in our lives. But it is, of course, my prayer for all of us this week and on into the future. So let's just take uh, a moment of quiet, and then Debbie is going to come and lead us in prayer.